Hello and welcome to Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about The Trial of the Chicago 7. Hmm. This came out back in September on Netflix. The film is about people I hadn't heard of. Yes. Um, even though they actually kind of intersect with another film we've seen very recently, Judas and the Black Messiah, Fred yes. Hampton shows up in this. Although I don't think there's evidence to suggest that he actually did show up in the trial yes. uh, sitting behind uh, Bobby Seale. The way he does here, mm. I think that was put in so that his death, mm. when you hear about it, would you know make sense and mm. feel connected. Um, so, at the Democratic National Convention in 1968, prior to that year's election, there was a riot, or maybe a number of riots, in, in the August that year. Yes, a lot of you know, kind of members of the counterculture, kids, hippies, so on and so forth, showed up at the Democratic National Convention to protest the Vietnam War, which at this point had gone on for what since 55, so what 13 mm. years at this point. And uh, riots erupted, uh, and part of the question of the film is how did they start and who started them? Uh, clashes with the police. Um, I think it's interesting that you don't see any police getting hurt. I mean, I find mm. it hard to imagine there weren't any. The film is beyond on the size of yes. the protesters and so on. And I guess making a statement against the kids and the students and so on, eight of them initially, and then Bobby Seale was declared a mistrial, were put on trial together. Mm. The claim was that they they had uh, conspired together to go to Chicago to cause violence and so on, and this is what they denied. And so, in very Aaron Sorkin style, the film is written and directed by him, mm. it is set within the courtroom, almost entirely as a framing device, and then you go into many, many flashbacks and memories and so on of how they got there, what actually happened, mm. You get kind of inactions, as it were, of people's testimony. You know, I, you know, this happened, and then you see it. Mm. It's got the most amazing cast. Yes. So let's read out. These are the seven defendants. Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Alex Sharp, Jeremy Strong, John Carroll Lynch, Noah Robbins, and Daniel Flaherty. Other roles, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, Frank Langella, Michael Keaton. It's got a hell of a cast. It's got a hell of a cast, and... I want to once again reiterate what a problem I find in this casting. So on the one hand, my first response is, isn't this a marvelous cast, right? All these starry names, you know, that are wonderful uh, uh, to see. But I think this is, you know, this is a, a drama about American history. And I think that casting these British actors is to me a, a real problem. Uh, even though I think some of them, uh, like Eddie Redmayne and Mark Rylance, they give very good performances, you know, but they're performances that are in a way not embodied, right? Like, you know, they, uh, there's a body language and a set of attitudes and a set of responses to particular situations that, you know, don't to me ring true. And partly it's because they don't inhabit, you know, that kind of, um, history, legacy, you know, space. I mean, American culture is different. And I find it almost, I was going to say obscene, and that's too strong a word. But the directors and the actors themselves don't uh, pay um, attention to that or are not, yeah, is you know, so contradictory because, you know, so much of an actor's language is about sense memory, 
right? Yeah, about touching on past experiences, mm. right? To kind of evoke or understand or depict, right? And yeah, to move across a culture, what sense memory, you know, both individual and collective are you tapping into, right? To convey whatever that is. So you could say, oh, well, you're not attributing enough imagination to actors, perhaps. Yeah, and, it, and it is acting. And it is acting, you know. But, you know, what does acting draw on? Acting draws on experience and knowledges and, yeah, and things that are in the air, yeah, that are unconscious. And, you know, actors often talk about that, yeah. You learn your lines, you think through your movement, and then you let yourself go. Well, what are you letting yourself go into from one culture to another? Well, there's also research. I mean, that's a huge amount. You know, that's why an actor can take on something that, that isn't where they were brought up. Or There is research. And you none know. of these people lived in 1968. Yeah. Uh, maybe a couple of the older ones, maybe. It's true. Uh, you know, but they would have had p- parents who did, or, you know, photographs, or, you know, I look at... Well, that's at, research. It's, it's, it, well, I mean, I suppose everything can be learned, but I don't think everything can be learned in a short amount of time. Yeah. You don't know how long they had. I do. I do understand what you mean, and I've agreed with this uh, to some degree on on other occasions. I'm not sure I do agree with it here. Um, I'm not sure there's enough in it to. I mean, well, I think the reason I don't agree with it here is because two of the three British actors, Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, and Mark Rydance, two of those I think gave exceptional performances. Well, I I, I do. So this is you know yeah. where I'm going to. Uh, hopefully not contradict myself, but add <laughs> a layer of argument. Because I do think that Benedict Cumberbatch gives a very good performance. In this? Yes, He's I do. not in this. Oh, sorry. Uh, who am I thinking of? Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> you see, Eddie Redmayne is more easily confused with Benedict Cumberbatch than he is with Tom Hayden. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. you, you weren't going to say that Tom Hayden gave a very good performance. No. But the thing is that I think he gives a very good performance. But, you know, I've seen footage of Tom Hayden in marches in the early 70s, mm-hmm. right? He he has this whole Irish-American vibe going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way that he talks, the way that he walks is kind of rangy and he's sexy. Yeah, and you what you have in, in Redmayne is somebody who's stiffened up, right? You know, who mm-hmm. kind of has obviously learned certain postures. Yeah, but in between postures... He's not kind of, you know... Well, he may not be being the real Tom Hayden. He may not be embodying that. But it may very well be a decision to play the character in a different way. I mean, one of the things is I was looking at... Well, with him, it's clearly a decision. I mean, you can tell. Every, yeah. Everything is thought through. One of the things I was uh, looking at after the film just finished was you know, various websites that say, what is the truth of the, of the film, mm-hmm. The Trial of the Chicago 7? And there are very many places that it diverges from real events. Mm. You know, certain things are true, certain things are not true, certain things are partially true. It's a film that plays fast and loose with the truth and one of the places that it may well play fast and loose with the truth is in the characterisations of the people involved. Yes. Um, I don't necessarily find that to be a problem when when I think that Eddie Redmayne played his character as well as he did and gave a performance that made sense in the context of the film, in context of the character as it's written. Well, I mean, again, you know, who is it making sense to... You know, I'd be curious to know um, what, uh, uh, you know, Americans thought of that performance. I mean, though, you know, I'm sure it got good reviews, so maybe I'm just being wrong about it. People but really it's... like Sasha Baron Cohen, so, and we both emerged from the film saying he wasn't very good in this. Yes, I... So I don't know really what the American response yeah. has to say. 
uh, I'm, I'm, coming out, I'm coming across as very didactic, and I don't mean that. So I'm not saying that you know people should just play their nationality or whatever. But this is a recurring pattern, right, in American cinema, you know, mm. to have all these British actors play roles. And you know, we've talked about how sometimes it bothers me and sometimes it doesn't. This is a case, you know, that it does bother me. And I think part of the reason that it does bother me is because it's a historical drama about recent history. They couldn't find an American actor to do it. Yeah, and they couldn't find an American actor who would draw on, you know, kind of a better uh, kind of, you know, knowledge of just almost like a kind of invisible things, really. Kind of, you know, the, the, the culture you imbibe when you grow up, ways of talking and speaking and sitting and reacting. I do, you know, I do find a lot of upper class Brits in Eddie Redmayne's performance. Well, I don't know. I don't know about finding someone better or whether they could have could. He's got an Oscar. I mean, you want him in the film. Well, you know, many American actors also have Oscars and, you know, many American actors of his generation or younger, you know, could get Oscars. I really have a problem with this type of casting and this type of role. All right, sure. Well, let's be, I mean, I think the way it may make sense to me is that when we talked about... Um, Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yes. And we talked about the kind of overall lack of respect that film seemed to show for the place where it was set. Yes. The lack of respect for actually understanding it and representing it in a way that seemed hmm. plausible and realistic. Um, you know, and I can I can understand that argument taken to to actors as well. You know, you just got this guy and then they didn't do the work or whatever it might be. Um, well, and you see this in this film as well. Uh, I mean, in, in you know, sorry, I'm looking for Abby Hoffman's place of birth, which I Massachusetts. thought... Massachusetts. Right, okay. Sasha Baron Cohen goes in and out. Uh, his accent is abysmal. Yes. And I've never actually been convinced by any of his accents. I mean, they've always been very broad. And, and you know, he's obviously got away with his accents a lot because he does candid camera stuff and talking to real people. He gets away with his accents all the time. Yeah. So, you know, clearly within the characters that he plays and within the, the real-life situation to get away with them, here it's broad and often fails and doesn't work. I mean, I, I heard London coming out of it a lot. Yes, you know? I did as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's a bad accent. But, you know, I'm not someone who fetishizes accents either. No. You know, but I think these figures are so important yeah, in kind of American culture and so known. I mean, even I grew up seeing pictures of, you know, Abby Hoffman with his hair and his daisies and so on, right? Like, mm. I, I, I must say, Sasha Baron Cohen doesn't evoke any of that to me. And he's way too old uh, to be cast in this role. But I think in a, to a different degree, it's also, to me, true of... Redmayne. Redmayne, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. And one gives a good performance, I think, and one gives a bad performance. Mm. You know, but it's a good performance that, uh, to me, you know, an American actor... An American actor of his uh, quality would have brought many more dimensions to Sure. I liked um, Redmayne's voice an awful lot, mm. which is not just his accent, but the quality of his voice, mm. the depth of it. Yes. I don't know the real Tom Hagen's voice. You know, he's, he's not a figure I grew up with or anything like that. I just liked it here, though. I'd like, you know, it felt it felt like more than putting on an accent. He was mm. embodying the character more deeply. Than yes, he's, he's really good, and uh, I like that very much. Um, it's a very lively film in the way it's structured and edited, and thing, I think. Mm. I don't know. It all reminds me a little bit of like Stanley Kramer cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, though, um, I think Sorkin is better just, 
you know, because he's got this really lively intelligence and, you know, he's, he's such a great writer, I think. But, uh, you know, they really are about a message and, and the politics. And I think it all comes across as really middle-brow to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it comes across as a lesson by someone who knows better, you know, to teach the audience X. Um, and it's very intelligent. You know, the dialogue is often memorable. He knows how to design dramatic moments for his actors, mm-hmm. right? But it doesn't add up to my idea of a great film. I think these incidents are uh, important to dramatize. I often question why I'm looking at it, and it's a sign of American imperialism that we're even watching this and kind of commenting on it and so Mm. on, right? I mean, if it weren't an American film, we wouldn't know, we wouldn't be interested, most of us wouldn't care, yeah, unless Mm. you had a, your uncle was American or whatever, right? That's true. So I think there is kind of, I feel kind of drawn into an imperial discourse that I'm resistant to in watching. That's true. The students, the students chant, the whole world is watching, and we are. And we are. <laughs> you know, well, wrong. you know, kind of. Because maybe there are students in what? Ethiopia chanting, the whole world is watching, and, and nobody is. <laughs> so, you know, these students happen to be right. And it, it's a very interesting story to, to kind of learn about. I understand that um, Sorkin, um, look, I was nervous to watch this film because I read back in August, I think, before the film came out, that um, Aaron Sorkin had been approached with this story, or, or but Steven Spielberg in 2006 had said to him, this would be a good thing to get your teeth into. Mm. And he'd sort of gone, oh yeah, brilliant, you know, count me in. And then after meeting Steven Spielberg, he'd gone, I haven't heard of these guys. And, and people were saying, like, someone who's written political drama in America for this long hasn't heard of the Chicago 7. So it's, you know, it, it, look, some people have blind spots, maybe it's forgivable, but... Well, not, ca- not everybody can know everything. Yeah. So, uh, well, not, nobody can know everything. Um, but it does surprise me, you know, that an American political commentator, a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a writer of political dramas, uh, someone who's in show business yeah. would not know, you know, that Tom Hayden yeah. you know, was part of this history and, and thus, you know, be able to link up a few names next to that history. I, that would, yeah. I don't quite believe that. Well, I remember a line in the newsroom, which was the um, uh, newsroom-based drama that mm. Sorkin wrote, um, where the main character, the main character talking to his producer and they talk about Abby Hoffman levitating the Pentagon. Mm. And the main character says, you can't levitate the Pentagon, it's really heavy. You know, it's, it's kind of classic Sorkin, witty, snappy, mm. blah, blah, blah. So there's obviously some, you know, and I'd heard of Bahabi Hoffman, I must say, um, although I didn't really know what I connected into. Mm. So there's obviously some, there's at least something residual that kind of, you know, has lasted from this. But um, apparently Sorkin was kind of learning about this over the last, like I say, it's been, it's been that was 2006, so yeah. 13, 14 years of development at least. I mean, you know, I must say, I, I, don't, I didn't know the, the ins and outs of the trial, right? Mm. I mean, I just knew about the Chicago Convention and you know, the trial, and, you know, I knew about Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and Bobby Seale and Tom Hayden. I, actually, I wouldn't have been able to name other names other than those. Yeah. Right? Um, and I, I didn't I didn't know the ins and outs or, you know, kind of what the trial was like or, sure. you know. But it, it shocks me that someone um, my age and an American wouldn't know that. It certainly would contradict everything I've been saying about actors. <laughs> 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 um, so it's interesting because I, 
everything that Sorkin does best, I think, is kind of on display here in his writing, as you said. The way he structures scenes, the, the way dialogue flows, the, the jokes that he's able to get out of it, the way that he develops drama throughout scenes and builds up to moments. Mm. He's very, very good at all that. And that's why I can watch so much of what Sorkin does, even though I'm aware that so much of it is kind of trash. Maybe trash is actually where he sings. I, I uh, actually, I don't think it's trash. I do think it's kind of, well, two things. Let me begin. So I agree with you, but what he doesn't know how to do is do the same thing with the camera that he does with his writing. Because he's directing it. Because he's directing it. So, you know, whereas his writing knows how to build up moments, yeah, Mm -hmm. and and how to develop character and how to kind of draw in, you know, a line that will make you laugh and break the mood of a piece and so on. He doesn't know how to do that with a camera, and and I think he doesn't even know how to, you know, construct a dramatic moment audiovisually, mm. right? You take you take his dialogue out, and he doesn't know what to do, right? I think that's true. Um, so, so I think the films become middling in a way that maybe you know the screenplay is is not. Yeah, the, the screenplay is of a higher quality mm. than the film itself. I think it's super intelligent, you know, and often very witty, right? I also think it's so the reason why for me it remains kind of middle brow and you know doesn't push you any further than that is because almost he doesn't allow for doubt or incomprehension or yeah kind of things that are beyond understanding I mean so he'll he'll allow for contradiction right so the young man who's a revolutionary but who wants to come across as a nice kid yeah, to his in-laws, yeah? Mm-hmm. The, those kinds of contradictions in character he allows you to see, right? But, you know, kind of other elements of, you know, human desire or ego or, you know, kind of they don't explode through in ways that feel human but maybe like outside of rational understanding. Everything is rational in Sorkin. And also people are playing um, quite rigid types, I think. Yes. The characters bounce off each other exactly the way you would expect them to from how they're set up. You know, you've got, like, is it Dellinger, who's the, the older guy who's literally a Boy Scout leader, as he says, and, you know, well, a pacifist, although he does turn around and throw a punch at one mm. point in this. Um, didn't happen, apparently. Mm. Um, uh, you got Redmayne, who, you know, kind of respects the court and understands that there's a kind of procedure that he has to try and follow if he's going to get off. And then you have Abby Hoffman, who's mm. a real wild card, and he's there to make political statements and so on. And that's all well and good. But when they interact, there's no there's no room for a surprise. Mm. I mean, well, apart from the one, the one I suppose would be when Abby Hoffman, when that tape comes in of Redmayne stoking the crowd, and they say, you know, this is going to kill the trial or whatever. Mm. And Abby Hoffman kind of stands up for him and says, no, you're a really smart guy. And mm. I like you. like they've been at there at each other's throats yeah. a bit throughout the whole film. So it's the, the surprise there is built in that oh, actually, he respects him and likes him. Uh, yeah. Apart from that. You know, there's, there's nothing that organic but, about it. But even those things are a bit of a cliche, as you say, they are yeah. built in. So what he shows is, like, people within a very narrow range, yeah, that is predetermined, you know, by what he sets up as the structure of the drama. Mm. You know, you also see that in the character of Tom Hayden, who's ostensibly a revolutionary, but you know he's going to be a success, right? Because, yeah, he's going to mainstream this into a different kind of a career. He wears a suit. He's respectful. And then you expect him at, yeah, he uh, stands up at the Bobby Seale thing where he says unconscionably. But then you know that at the end there's going to be like, mm. yeah, kind of this response of solidarity. But again, that's built in because 
you know, the standing up for Bobby Seale then requires him to compensate by standing up for, by calling all the dead and all the Vietnamese, mm. all the people, all the young men who died in Vietnam. So it's almost cliche-ish, you know? yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so we've seen another film recently about uh, a kind of biased trial, mm. which was Mangrove yes. in Small Axe. Yes. Which, to be fair, I don't actually remember too many details, but wasn't the judge in that similarly uh, kind of biased against yes. the defendants as he is here? Although the judge here is off the charts in yeah. the decisions he makes and how every single uh, objection is overruled immediately, he doesn't listen, all this. And that's a great performance. You Frank know. Langella is the judge. Uh, yeah. You know, kind of the way that he comes into the courtroom, like, kind of, you know, distracted and with his mouth open. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, it already, his very presence kind of, you know, brings up kind of a perspective and an attitude and a point of view, uh, which I think is absolutely marvelous. Um, mm. And also, again, not to belabor this point, yeah, but his whole body language and kind of in entering the courtroom and so on, it kind of evokes a kind of an understand, a depth of understanding and knowledge about that which he is representing and expressing that to me some of the British performers don't. Yeah, no, he's right. He's a famous judge. And we, well, he's, he's often been in court. Well, he knows how, you know, how the American justice system works. Mm. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is possible to belabor that point somehow. <laughs> All right, I'll drop it. He knows how Americans walk. <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, I do keep thinking about it in relation to Mangrove because they're so similar, right? That these mass trials of, to put it very broadly, countercultural figures, mm. um, counter-establishment figures, um, you know, in the face of a, of a biased system that wants to mm. you know, kind of send them down, but actually finds out that it can't. They were sentenced to the end of this, but then on appeal, the sentences were all revoked. But, you know, Mangrove was... Mangrove was so rich and and so detailed, and you felt... Uh, the, what, one, the one thing that they shared that's interesting is, in both films, the characters have a sense of... Or some of the characters have a sense of how important the trial is beyond just whether they go to jail or not. Mm. They're aware of it as a cultural moment, and, and, a, and a, I suppose a moment in legal history and something important because of precedence it will set, because of the way it will look. It's much simpler here, though. It's yes. much simpler. There's maybe a conversation or two and there's nothing you wouldn't expect. It's, it was much richer in Mangrove. It's you know. simpler and visually illiterate. Yeah, <laughs> Mangrove is the work of a visual artist. Imagine what Steve McQueen uh, would have done with the image of Bobby Seale gagged and bound <laughs> in a yeah. courtroom. I mean, think of, you know, how many powerful images he would have created, images that would have remained in your unconscious and resonated. You know, Sorkin writes that and then presents it as if it's just somebody sitting in the courtroom, you know, in long shots, right, without any kind of visual design as to how to make that image, mm. you know, of a black man gagged and bound in a courtroom in the United States. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. know what to do. It's shocking, the, yeah. the lack of skill you know, and imagination in the visual presentation of that moment. Mm. And I think that's absolutely typical of the film. That's an excellent point. Very Thank well you. made. <laughs> it's true. That's such a powerful thing to find. And that did happen. That's not yes. a Sorkin invention. I checked. 
you know, as I checked everything, it happened, and and yeah, it's a waste of an image. Yeah, I mean, and that I think speaks of the kind of film that it is, right? Mm. Socially conscious, intelligent, about a historical incident, i.e., prime Oscar <laughs> contender, yeah. Yeah, exactly. right? But also typical Oscar contender in that it's a so far removed from any kind of art. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just giving, people, giving you what you want. I mean, that's the thing that I find in the newsroom. And the thing is, I can watch the newsroom again and again. Mm. It's one of the enduring shames of my life. But I, <laughs> because the thing about the newsroom is that is the American left's L'Esprit de l'Escalier, mm. right? Like two years after real news things happened, you have this liberal American news network invented by Aaron Sorkin covering the story the way that they should have covered it if only, you know. Mm. So, so it's like, this is what we would have done if we'd been smart enough at the time. And it's absolute, it's the kind of liberal comfort food that just gives you what you want. But I can lap it up. Mm. I can look at it and, and know that that's exactly what it's doing. But I am completely okay with it because I like the characters, I like the way they're written, I like how everything flows. And to some degree, I like the fantasy of how this should have gone. Mm. And there's some of that that I can apply to the trial of Chicago 7. Like, I could watch this again. This, the, it would carry me through. The dialogue and the performances, that kind of snappiness that it does have, mm. would carry me through. Although I think it's interesting that there is something organic to the dialogue that I think you don't often get with Sorkin, actually. There's something more realistic about it that I don't think I often I often think I get. You know, it, it's not as theatrical as he usually is, mm. I don't think. Or as yeah. showy. Hmm. I mean, I, I like it very much, you yeah. know, um, and it's affecting. I mean, people, people found, uh, or friends of mine found the ending, you know, with everybody rising mm. to be like a cliched, which of course it is. Nonetheless, I found it affecting. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about what you're saying about his filmmaking technique and, and what he knows how to do there yeah. is bump up the soundtrack. Yes. Soundtrack overwhelms that. Yeah. And that's why you kind of feel the the way it's meant to make you feel, yeah. and it does. Yeah. Um, I can also fill you in that um, John Dellinger apparently read the names, and it happened before. It did happen, but it just wasn't by right. top end. It wasn't at the end of the trial. Well, it turns it into a very you know, it turns it into the moment that it is. Yes, and it turns it into a redemption of Tom Hayden. Yeah, um, you know which. Uh, well, the, well, the development of Tom Hagen's character is interesting because he's the one who is respecting the court and so on and so forth, and the other f- members of the Chicago Seven are decrying him for that. Mm. And the redemption is to some degree kind of enforced because when that tape comes out of him saying this thing, if blood is going to run, let it run all over the city or something like that, you know, which basically makes him out to be, actually, of all the people who were there, none of them started this riot, really. They were just mm. there, and, and they're being framed to say, well, framed might be putting it strongly but you know mm. they're being they're being made out to be saying they're not and then you get this tape and you go oh wait the mild one the respectful one he's the one mm. you know so well i mean it's very interesting because he's he's seen or he's depicted as having more of a fervor yeah for change than the others but also being more opportunistic than the others mm. and both more scared and braver yeah, so he's he's he is given a different status than the other uh, uh, characters. I think he's seen in a better light uh, than the others, and that might just very well be because um, subsequent events prove to be not very kind to Abby Hoffman or mm. Jerry Rubin, right? 
I think one committed suicide. Yeah, and the other one was uh, became a stockbroker. <laughs> yeah, often committed suicide uh, at around Sasha Baron Cohen's age. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I did, I did find, um, and this is a recurring problem in films when dealing with these events, because I do think you would have had a different film, a better film, had you cast like at least a decade younger, if maybe even two. He but is two decades older than he is two decades older, and Ruben was quite old. Com- yeah, right. Compared to the others, right? I think he was older than the others. So I think uh, you know Tom Hayden would have been like twenty nine or something, and Ruben would have been thirty two. You know, and I mean some of the others were clearly you know students or or grad student age, right? So if you cast people in their twenties or early thirties, this would have had a completely different type of energy, right? Whereas you're casting people really from their thirties to their fifties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, how old is um, Eddie Redmayne? Thirty-nine. There you go. You see, to have cast an actor a decade younger, mm. yeah, would have brought a whole different type of energy. And I think it's important because also there are questions of libido. There's a sexual energy as well. I think in your twenties, right? So part of your other activities, work and activism and doing things, right? It's partly, you know, it's partly just being young and having lots of energy. But but there is a kind of a sexual dimension to it, right? Mm. You know, which is completely lacking here. I think, especially you know when you're shown, kind of, orgy. Well, orgy is the wrong word because in fact Ruben says they didn't have sex. But you know you're mm. you're shown these dark rooms with like several men and women and, in yeah, mm. in romantic in quotation mark situations. But that whole kind of energy is missing, right? And I think it's interesting because you know when I was looking up uh, Hayden's age, yeah. He married at 21, <laughs> mm. right? So, you know, there is kind of that whole thing, yeah, that's kind of, that should be a part of this film and that it isn't at all. Mm. Is it an improvement on Molly's Game, which is the other feature he directed? Uh, yes, I do think it's an improvement on Molly's Game. I mean, all I can remember of Molly's Game is Jessica Chastain looking beautiful and smart and being great. <laughs> you know, that's all, right. you know. I can't, So I think... Uh, you know, this is a more complex story. Uh, it involves a lot more characters, yeah, which are very different. Different. It's true. He's yeah. marshalling more material. Yeah, and yeah. putting it together. You know, uh, so I think this is a more complex and and better work. Yeah, I think so. And actually, I was I, I was impressed by, if not the look, but the scale of some of those courtroom scenes or, or right scenes. So there's so many people, mm-hmm. and actually so many important actors, important roles yeah. to be managing and balancing. Yes. Um, you know, I, I found that quite. I found that quite impressive to see. Maybe it's something that I feel I don't see apart outside of like <laughs> Avengers Endgame, where you know, <laughs> like the well, crossover. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is like a crossover uh, of of, uh, of countercultural protesters. I also think it's interesting in um, obviously when it came out, America was like I suppose at that time coming out of um, the riots for George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and mm. Breonna Taylor, who'd been murdered in racially motivated or mm. racially. Yeah, racially motivated murders. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was just before the election, which Joe Biden won, and then obviously on January the 6th, we'd see we'd see Trump and Rudy Giuliani and his mates inciting violence the way that, you know, the Chicago 7 is supposed to have. Yes. Um, 
so it's it's kind of it's interesting how it how you know the film has obviously been in development for a very long time, picked up relevance, you know, just before its release, and then on the other, I was also thinking how you know in this country we've got this anti-protest bill that's has it gone through? Is it going through? Um, um, you know, where you're not, you're the government is taking the opportunity to stop people protesting by. I think they're essentially using COVID safety yeah. as the excuse. Don't gather, and we're going to make it illegal for you to protest. Yes, I mean, you know, it's un- so- it is unbelievable. Um, I think, to me, what you describe, which I agree with, but it also makes me think that the film is even more conservative. So it's not you. You saying it's picking up on those things, and I think yes. Oh no, I don't think it's picking up on them. I said it picked up relevance kind oh, by accident okay. because of the time it came out. Yes. Because, you see, the film makes it seem that, that an act of corruption, which is, you know, somebody endangering people's lives and reputation out of peak for his, you know, the, the, the person who previously occupied his office because he handed it to him just an hour before, mm. right? You know, which is a corrupt thing to do. You have to use your office for personal gain or, yeah. Motives. Uh, motives. Um, you know, but they make it seem as if like this is this horrible thing, right? Whereas, you know, the horrible things that we saw all through Trump's presidency, <laughs> yeah, are so beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. That it it hardly comes across as a revelation, yeah. Uh, so, anyway, what I do want to say is how wonderful I think Michael Keaton is. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, he gives a very sparse, uh, clean performance, yeah. It's just kind of a few looks, a few gestures, no great variation in his tone of voice. Yeah, but he makes that person both kind of human and also, like, entertaining, you know. Mm. Anyway, any last things to say about the film? Um, It wasn't um, nearly as painful as I had expected it to be. Ah, good point. That's true me um, as well. Based on what I, you know, what I vaguely read about, this guy hadn't heard of this and... I must say, it's been cropping up on my Netflix for a long time. And every time I see it, I go, ugh, not now. Right. Yeah, like, you know, but it's, no, it's actually it's decent. Yeah. So I'm all right with that. Uh, so it's one of those films that you feel you should see, but then you think, oh, it's not going to be a lot of fun. And you avoid it. And actually, it was, it was a lot more fun than I expected it to be. Yeah, yeah, you'd be surprised. Um, and, I, and I suppose, uh, also in the plus column, I was pleasantly surprised at how... The racial aspects to the trial, basically the treatment of Bobby Seale and the Black Panther presence and so on. Um, you know, I was surprised. I was I was surprised with how uh, I suppose intelligently that all seemed to be handled. You know, mm. and yeah, actually he gets his moment. I mean, he gets a lot of moments where he stands up and streaks for himself because his, his lawyer isn't there and he keeps getting told to shut the fuck up, but he will not stop. And you really feel for him and you feel his moments every time. You know, mm. and the performance. See, that's Yaya Abdul Mateen wonderful mm. and then the moment where it's Red Man and Rylance when they go to see him to inform him that Fred Hampton's been murdered mm. he accuses Red Man of kind of not being serious I guess you know he says like what you're doing is you're telling off your dad yeah. and so are all your white friends and Red Man goes yeah you might be right about that and he goes you can see how that's different to a rope hanging from a tree and like and it's it's a powerful line and it's delivered it as such and it and it's let you know, there's not a, there's not a comeback to it. Mm. You know, <laughs> Sorkin is the king of of you know the, the witty rejoinder, and there is none at that point. And he lets yes. the line sit there. He does. 
Too bad he couldn't visualise it more powerfully. No, that may be true, but it's still, uh, still, it's, it's a sparse room and it's a sparsely kind of shot scene. I didn't mind, you know, it felt... It still felt wrong to me. You could have given more of a close-up to Bobby Seale at that moment. Um, mm. I kind of, you know, this thing of keeping the camera at a distance, which is very characteristic of this film. Mm. In fact, I, I, I don't think it works to its advantage, or certainly it's... It's visually the consistency of its use is uh, dull visually. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a look that smacks of coverage. Yes, yeah, so a lot knowing, of safety shots. Yeah, not knowing what to do. Yeah, um, but a lot of decent lines. They should have called it a few good bits. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, uh, a lot of good bits. Yeah, and not many great ones. Yeah. Right, that's fair <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up here. Um, I recommend that people see it. Yeah, yeah, so do I. So um, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at eavesdropmovies, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.